Hi, everyone. Um, welcome back to another episode of the Reframe series. And today we have someone very, very special joining us. So we have Dr. Gayatri Sethi, who is an educator, writer, and independent consultant. She teaches and writes about social justice, global studies, and comparative education. Born in Tanzania and raised in Botswana, she is of Punjabi descent, multilingual, and polycultural. She reflects on these life experiences of identity, immigration, and belonging in her debut nonfiction book titled Unbelonging. And she is also the co-founder of the Desi Kidlit Community, an initiative to build solidarity among South Asian diaspora writers for young, young people. When she is not reading or recommending books on Instagram as Desi Book Auntie, she is envisioning traveling and gathering in community safely again. Um, so, so nice to have you on. What a joy and what a delight. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been something I'm looking forward to. Oh, well, I, I would love to, to get us started with our, our first question because I just really enjoyed reading your book. So um, first of all, can I just say your book is incredibly eye-opening and deeply resonated with me in so many ways. Um, from your origins in Africa to your disabled parents to your journey to the United States and the ways you have grown and embraced radical love your story allowed me to experience a complex and multi-layered um, experience that often is so lost in mainstream media. And I'm just so grateful to know more about you and understand your life story. Um, I would love to know what inspired you to write the story and um, why in this poetic format? Oh, thank you for, thank you for seeing the layers of intent behind the book and for this praise that you've offered. Um, it means a lot to a debut writer. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, part of the journey to writing this book was that it was a book that was within me for a long time. And, you know, Dr. Toni Morrison says that if there's a book that you really want to read, sometimes you have to write it. And I was haunted by that notion. Uh, from the time that I encountered that notion maybe over 10 years ago, because I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader and I also teach about concepts like identity and belonging and global learning and comparative education. So I'd been teaching these concepts and teaching courses in women's studies and feminist studies and constantly searching for content that I could use to as you so beautifully said, to sort of like expose the layers and nuances of identities, especially diasporic identities. And I was always coming up short, especially when it came to academic content, right? Like in journals and sort of like texts that were often used and written by academics. So then I found myself gravitating to poetry <laughs> and to fiction. And so then I would search for writers who were writing these concepts in other forms. Um, and that's when I, it started to click for me that 
one of the things that needed to happen was that I needed to write outside of the norms of what's considered to be an academic text. And that's why, to answer your question about writing in semi-verse. So it became clear to me that whatever this book was that I was going to write and compose was going to be a genre bender or something that wasn't going to easily fit a genre. That I wasn't, it wasn't going to be a memoir because the way that we think of memoir, it's a very self-serving, self-centered kind of a, a writing. That it wasn't going to be one of those feminist workbooks because those tend to be really flat in terms of not really revealing emotive landscapes of the person creating the workbook. That it wasn't going to be a piece of fiction, that it wasn't going to be a textbook, and it wasn't going to be an academic text. So I knew what it wasn't going to be more and more as I started to write it. But then what was it going to be? And that open-ended process was terrifying. Um, you know, it was terrifying because I hadn't read the kind of book I wanted to create, right? Like I didn't have a mentor text or a femtor text. Um, very often, you know, in MFA programs, and I didn't go to one, but, you know, I'm self-taught in many ways. I didn't learn poetry or writing poetry. But what I wanted to do was to study the craft enough that I could be able to do that. And the reason I gravitated to verse and to sort of bending of genres um, was because what I wanted to do was write in a way that laid open not just the intellectual ideation of belonging and unbelonging, but also the emotive landscapes. And so if you think about it, there are certain kinds of books that make you think a lot. And there are books that make you feel a lot, but I wanted this to do both and <laughs> more. So I had to be really intentional in creating blank spaces for the reader to reflect. I had to be really intentional in writing in ways that might not read like lecture notes, but might be things that I might've said in a classroom with present. So those were some of the kind of process things behind the scenes in, in sort of choosing to write outside of what's normative in books like this. Um, and so it isn't really a poetry collection. However, there are many verses in it. Um, and the most important thing I want to say about that is that, you know, I had to lean ancestrally on kind of like, how did people of the South Asian di diaspora, how did Punjabi ancestors from two generations ago communicate with each other? And um, the more that I went into that inquiry, the more that I realized that the way they did it was through verses, right? Through bullion, through um, call and repeat. And it was usually people my age and gender who in a village community or in a circle of friends or kin would be the ones that would either be telling the stories or saying the verses or singing the songs on repeat at uh, special ceremonies and having call and response. And so then I was like, ah, <laughs> now I see this hat. This book has to have that element. Um, and so that's what I was inspired by ultimately because there was a model for the kind of writing that I wanted to do that I hadn't encountered yet. Yeah. Wow. That's so, um, it's so eye-opening just to know like um, 
what that process of exploration and experimentation was like for you, right? Because it, it is often very like terrifying <laughs> trying to do something or bring something into existence that has never really, um, like you've never seen um, have a form before. And so I, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled and I, and um, it just makes me appreciate so much more um, the work that you did do in, in writing this and in experimenting and bringing into existence something that doesn't currently exist. Thank you. And, you know, and yet there are citations. There are people, you know, like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde and Frantz Fanon and, you know, a number of decolonial writers, Paulo Freire. And there are people that I cite and I created my own citation structures because it was that kind of a book that required me to innovate even what that looked like because there were ideas and sort of intellectual ancestors I wanted to pay homage to while doing this sort of like, innovating, if for lack of a better way of thinking of it. Um, and so it could have been a, a disaster of a book, right? Like it could have had too many elements because until th this very complex puzzle of what it was going to look like with the various elements of reflection prompts, as well as verses, as well as memoir-esque sort of, you know, grounding facts about kind of my own um, life, you know, which really is kind of an auto-ethnographic nod to kind of my own training in qualitative research methods. So there was a lot of layers of academic training that also went into the work. Um, and I wanted to sort of clarify that part too, is that, you know, what I would do also as part of the process was there was a great deal of reading and reflection and also a great deal of um academic research that went into it. Um, but what I tried to do was to then not write in essay form or not write in academic paper form. So there was a great deal of translation that then needed to happen was taking concepts like intersectionality or taking anti-racist, anti-oppression concepts, um, you know, like even pedagogy, and then translating it onto these pages in ways that were um, woven in um, and for the reader that really wanted to go down the path or sort of like reading further the sort of academic pieces that that was possible but also that it wasn't a deterrent so that was another dynamic that I was trying to navigate the entire time so you know, so along with that process of reading and reflection and research and taking a big stack of books like this and distilling it down to maybe four lines, okay? That's, that was the task. That, it's much harder for academically trained folks like us to write a long article than it is to write four lines about it. So that's the other part in the book where, you know, like you might read four lines and be like, oh, but likely there was a stack high of books and research and thinking and drafts and reflecting for me to distill that out. Um, also, there was a great deal of unlearning, or another way of talking about it might be decolonizing, um, of what was taught to me as what is what constitutes good academic writing. I had to unlearn a lot of those rules to give myself creative freedom to do what I did and to write in verse. And so that was also a great risk and a terrifying process. Um, it was an unsettling process. Because I was, you know, like many of us aren't used to seeing a book like this that includes academic um, 
concepts, but doesn't write the way that we're used to seeing it. So some of the critics of the book are kind of really challenged and discomforted by that. But that's one purpose. <laughs> that was my intent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also loved the fact that, um, like in addition to kind of, um, breaking down some of these concepts that were super interesting and we'll get to in a later question, um, was also just how you wove your own story, um, to, to really illustrate some, some of the, these issues. Um, so then this actually bleeds really well into the next question, um, I had for you. Um, so, there's a point in your story that that really struck me, um, and it was when you were on an F1 visa going to the United States, and you're you're like 18 at this time, and you have a layover in Brussels, and the security there thought you were a spy because you had an Indian passport, and you spoke to him in French, and. I can only imagine how traumatizing that type of experience would be um, to someone who's just going off to college. Um, how did you deal with it? And are there strategies that um, you've developed to cope with those types of situations? Yeah, I mean, I've had so many experiences like that in my life. And I, I chose that one particularly because it... it illustrates something about uh, the unique experience of being multi-identified and looking one type of way, speaking a lot of other languages, and also being someone who's globally, like, really, like, hyper aware and, right, can code, cannot just code switch, but also can language switch and persona switch, right? So that's what happens to a person whose parents are originally from partitioned Punjab, who, you know, the, who was born in rural Tanzania and raised, you know, in Botswana and who learned French and went through a very British colonial education and had already read Jane Austen and Macbeth and all of the Shakespeare verses and, and proved to people at the University of Cambridge that they were worthy of getting the colonizers stamp of approval of being a hyper-educated person. So I had already done that by then, right? And I had traveled alone to back and forth from the African continent to India several times by then. So I, traveling alone wasn't a new thing. We also have to contextually remember that it was an apartheid time at the time where apartheid was um, still a thing. And, um, and, um, the resistance movements were very active at this time. And I was very well aware of that because many of my teachers were not just uh, white people from South Africa who had opposed uh, the apartheid government. And so they're the ones that educated me, but also because many of my neighbors were people who were part of the resistance movement. Right. So what I didn't illuminate was also examples of, you know, like, multilingual kind of like resistance strategies that I had seen in just everyday life, right? Like, so none of those things I had the bandwidth to sort of really go into, but I just want to contextualize for this conversation that, yes, I actually could have been a spy. Like my family, my children and I joke about this a lot, 
Because in many places I go and I overhear conversations in different languages, whether it's Gujarati or whether, you know, like I'll overhear conversations and I know exactly what's up, not just from the words, but also from the nonverbal cues. Um, and so, and so I think there was something about that person who saw my passport, saw me as a person, something about me signaled to them that I was a kind of human that needed to be interrogated. So a lot of European descended people on every continent have that reaction to me. And so this is the thing is that that was just one among many, right? So even my colleagues from Europe who, you know, uh, who taught with me and taught in global learning, but because they were German professors, whereas I am actually a multilingual speaker of many languages across many continents, but I don't call myself a global learning expert, but they did, right? Like even they had the same reaction to me as the passport control officer in Brussels. And it is a very particular reaction of encountering an embodiedly brown person who knows your culture and your language and presents a threat to the status quo because they are embodied as someone who really knows who they are, isn't about to kowtow to you because you know, I, I wasn't going to crumble and cry in the presence of this interrogation that lasted many, many hours. I didn't. I didn't cry, not once. Um, and they couldn't break me. <laughs> so this is the thing, is that they couldn't make me break down and like in tears and call my father in times before we had the internet. <laughs> I didn't do that. I actually negotiated my way out of that situation until I got to the hotel. And, and that is who I am as a person. I was that person at 18, and I was certainly that person at age 40-something with my colleagues in academic spaces where they presumed me incompetent, but actually I was smarter than all of them put together, and they kind of knew that, but they never wanted to acknowledge that. So this is the kind of carity that many of us experience who are the kind of person I am and I am not the only one I'm not an exception and I also want that to be really clear is that colonial mindset often makes us think that people like me are the exception you know oh you just must be really like whatever you have a lot of educational privilege blah, blah. no no actually I kind of am very familiar with people just like me <laughs> there are many of us and we exist um, and so that's one of the things I wanted to signal in the book over and over again in many ways, that there are no coping strategies to that. To answer your question head on, there are no coping strategies. I think it's a relentless negotiation, but it has to come from a place of knowing who you are. And the thing is, if I didn't know at 18 that I was capable of getting myself out of this bind, and I knew I was, I, I, I kind of have that I had that clarity that I was still going to taste that coffee and chocolate I wanted. <laughs> and I also had the clarity that this person really needed to learn a lesson. But I wasn't going to teach it to them in a way that was going to result in my oppression. So this is constantly that negotiation with dominant 
culture with dominant spaces when we are the only in all white spaces in particular. So I was in that time I was looking around, there was nobody that looked like me and not one person brought me a cup of water. Not one person checked on me during that time. And I think that at 18, I then realized a, that I had the wherewithal within me to negotiate my way out of that and B that this was going to be a thing for the rest of my life in the West. As long as I was entering all white spaces, I needed to figure this out. Um, and I've had to figure this out over and over and over again, um, living here in these sacred lands of the Muscogee peoples, living in the lands of the Illini people. When I first came to college, I learned that over and over and over again in many shapes and forms. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, thank you just for sharing that and this, this idea of negotiating. Um, I, I think it, it also helps me to understand some of my experiences better and kind of even how I relate to this idea of, um, of, like having to navigate towards multiple different types of spaces and, and how to exist within them. So I really appreciate that. Um, I mean, I had many, I had many opportunities to crumble and cry, but I I think there's something in me that I don't know where it comes from. And I think the book kind of really does show that more so than tell it is that, I'm the type of person that resists deeply oppression on kind of a core level, right? There's something in me that knew that what they were doing was unjust, unfair, and wrong. And I think some, that part of me got sparked mm. in those interactions. And usually when that happens, there's a part of me that just, I'm like, try me, just try me. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think we all have that part in us. And I think that's it, is that we all have that part in us. And I think many of us, uh, need to just stay in touch with it and cultivate it and fuel it and remember it, 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 it is within us. Yeah. Yeah. This, this also connects really well, I, I think, um, in some ways with the next question, which I think this is, this is looking at um, how do you have this resistance um, to, to kind of this Western world. But um, Early on in the book, you also talk about something called lateral violence, which was a really new concept to me. Um, could you tell us a bit about that and how you've experienced it in your own life? Yeah, it is a new concept. And, and you know, what I puzzled over a lot, you know, when I thought about unbelonging, it wasn't always with respect to colonial kind of structures and systems, right? Like that's a big part of it or resistance to white gaze or whatever. But I think for me in my life, one of the bigger bigger sources, one of the most trying sources, one of the most spirit soul wounding parts of my journey with unbelonging has been people who share identities with me um, enacting 
violent forms of unbelonging towards me. And I think this is what I was trying to elucidate in this book more so because I didn't write it, you know, with the intention that the reader was going to be anyone but who shared identities with me. So I wrote it very intentionally. Again, another intentional choice to backtrack to your original question was to write it, you know, with the assumptions that the person reading it would share identities with me, a lot of mainstream narratives that actually lack nuance and depth, you know, center the white reader and assume that the reader is white. And this wasn't that kind of a book. Um, on purpose. And so, so I think it was really important for me to then, in really honest ways, reveal this element of how you and I, though we share identities, are not community by just the fact that we share identities, right? So we may share caste, we may share uh, language, we may share origin stories, um, we may share similar family histories, and yet, you know, one of the dynamics through much of my uh, life was that those were the very people who tormented me the most. <laughs> so what is the concept for that? And I, it took me a long time through a lot of, as I was saying before, research and reading to find the concept. Because one of the things that the book tries to do is to give us language, to talk about the experiences that we have a hard time figuring out. Right? So when it comes to identity, when it comes to belonging, there are many experiences we have, but we just don't have the words to talk about it. And naming is healing is what I say over and over again in many iterations. And, the, and partly what I was able to do was to alchemize, transmute my own academic privilege and all that research I was doing with those book stacks and sort of come up with languaging and weave it in here so that the reader can then have a phrase maybe that they can use and use it uh, or research it or learn it. And so throughout, I weave those in because it's really important when you are feeling an experience of oppression to have words to talk about it. Like there's no way that we're going to heal that oppression, let alone liberate ourselves from it, if we don't know how to even name it. <laughs> Correct? You see, are you with me so far? So that's where lateral violence was a concept that really came in handy. And when I found it, I was like, ah, boom, this is it. This is the one. It was originally, I think it was indigenous um, activists and scholars, um, U.S. indigenous, as in the native first peoples of America's Turtle Island, who came up with it. And it was really hard for me to find an original citation, just so you know, to figure out who came up with this concept. And so the citation I used was Richard Franklin, but that was a very tough one to find. So there may have been actually somebody before, like in verbal speaking circles and healing circles, decolonizing circles who would have used it. And this person just happened to be the first one that I came across who actually wrote it down in an academic paper. So there's that dynamic. Um, but they, I'm going to read you that. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. So... The reflection is to be Desi-ish is to realize that wherever Desi's reside, casteism prevails. And, um, and then I have the citation of Richard Franklin, a meditation on lateral violence. Well, lateral violence happens when we Desi folks identity police each other. When we turn on each other to protect whiteness. 
when we internalize the misleading narratives about us, when one of us is made to feel like they are not one of us, when easiness is weaponized by those who presume to be the keepers of all that is basic. So the thing that gets told to me a lot throughout my life was that I wasn't really that I wasn't really Daisy, that that I really had no claim to this to, to, to that identity because I didn't wasn't born there and I didn't grow up there. Um, so much so that even relatives would deny. Uh, they they would call me their African cousin, uh, but in Africa I wasn't African. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> So, so I was neither here nor there from a very early age, you know, from toddlerhood, those were the experiences, you know, like I lived in all black spaces. I went to an all black preschool. Um, all of the people shared languages that I shared and spoke with them, but it was very clear that one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> Raise his hand. <laughs> um, and so I think what that made me is I got called a fraud a lot, right? An imposter or a fraud um, in various languages, in various ways. Um, you're not a real African. You're not really Desi. You really aren't Indian. Don't call yourself Indian. You hate Indians. <laughs> you are an, an anomaly to Indianness. I would get called the disgraceful uh, Indian a lot. Um, because they didn't necessarily color within the lines of what the keepers of all things they see, all things Indian, all things Hindu, wanted me to be that I wasn't, right? Like, how, how can you even be called Gayatri? Like, you're not even Hindu. You don't even understand the basics of Hinduism. It's true. But, you know, again, uh, to be Indian doesn't automa is not an equatable thing with being Hindu, and yet, we live in a world where that is a presumption, an unspoken thing about what Indianness means. There, there are unspoken rules that are still being policed and weaponized by a whole entire fascist regime in that country. So I'm not making stuff up. Just pay attention to what's happening in India right now and who is that regime and the fascism and then make the links to what that means for lateral violence. And sometimes lateral violence is a comment. Sometimes it's an unwelcoming space where you're just not welcome to come and socialize with us. Um, and, and it shows up in lots of different ways. So I go on then to talk about what lateral violence looks like in Daisy circles, and especially in diasporic folks like me, we have no other word or term to identify ourselves. And I came to Desi, you know, reluctantly, and I, I, I use the, the qualifier ish for a lot. So there, the other alternative title to the book could have been ish, right? Desi ish, African ish, American ish, you know, like doesn't matter which identifier, I'm kind of ish, <laughs> not quite there. Um, and yet I am all of that and then some. So, so I just wanted to be able to sort of interrogate this notion of identity policing and how that is a form of lateral violence, whether that policing is happening around assumptions of caste or religion or um, 
color even, because there's a lot of colorism in our community. Um, and so when I also partnered up with someone who's African-American and identifies very much as black, um, then whole other layers of identity policing happen with me, with my children, with our family, you know, like how is it that we have these dual standards, right? That by being white adjacent, somehow we still retain our laziness, but by being black adjacent, all of a sudden we've given up any claim to being called Indian or to our identifiers. And I'm like, listen, listen, we still eat dal in my house. <laughs> Ask my children what their comfort food is. And they're like, maki dal. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it's in the details where the identities are. And I do give us those details throughout the book to say, you know, here are the little, little, little details that make us who we are. You know, when we're having a bad day, what comfort food are we craving? Pakora on a rainy day. That's it. Now, like if I name that, how are you going to tell me in lateral violence that I'm not Daisy? <laughs> how can I tell you something that specific about our people? Right? And then you still tell me, well, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not one of us. And, and so that's always yet another negotiation that constantly happens in my life. Right. And sometimes it's explicit, but most of the time it's just that quiet, way that people just disown you and shun you because you somehow don't fit their sense of who you're supposed to be. So I tried to eliminate all of those. And, and it's lateral violence because that's violence, right? Because those experiences, especially when it's like repeated and repeated and repeated and you experience it so often, cut us on a deep soul level. Um, so that, that's why I use the term lateral violence, even though some people would just call it, ah, ah, you know, so I refuse to normalize those things. That was a very long answer to your question. And I hope I am. It did. It was a, it was a wonderful answer because I think it hit on a lot of nuances and I think it also blends really well into the next question, um, that I have for you. So, um, so you talk about parenting as a blend, parenting Blindian children in the book and the racism your children encounter on school grounds and playgrounds, as well as your focus on teaching your children self-love. I can only imagine how challenging that must be. And I think many from my generation who are exploring biracial relationships often think about what that must be like or um, how, how to even cope with those types of challenges. So can you share some of the experiences you talk about in the book? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are so many more that, of course, they're so tender. And, you know, a book like this needed the consent of the people most directly impacted by it, right? Um, unfortunately, there are people who've read it and they're like, I can't believe you wrote that. Um, so that's a whole other layer of vulnerability that the book is opening up. But when it comes to my children, I'm very sort of um, aware that I needed their consent. So the parts that I did share you know, they are aware, are in here, but they are general and nonspecific. Um, 
and the reason for that was to protect them in some way, right? Because I don't want my experiences to somehow overshadow theirs. So to the extent of that, um, what I can say is, so for example, in raising children who are, you know, multiracial, I guess, because they have indigenous relatives, they have Cherokee relatives and Navajo relatives, and they have, you know, they also have um, enslaved Black African relatives, and then they have this whole you know, South Asian side to their family. And so the way the race uh, operates in America, they are black. And so one of the, the primary things that I needed to do when Baba, I call him Baba, when Baba and I partnered up and committed to one another that we were going to be a family and to create kind of a family unit together, we both entered in mutual learning and studying of our cultures and identities um, and it came with a great deal of responsibility, I feel, because what I was hyper aware of is that very often the non-Black relative or the non-Black parent to multiracial Black children is the source of harm to, to their children. And it happens over and over again because I had read and seen and observed enough. I'd been an educator in many of my biracial students and folks who I'm in community with would confess to me that it was their white or white adjacent parent who did the most harm to their sense of self. And, you know, and I, I used to babysit a lot of children. I had, I had a lot of children in my life because I also used to be a teacher. So knowing that, observing it, seeing it over, and then giving myself cautionary notes came with a great deal of responsibility. So Bob and I didn't have our children for, we were married for five years. And when we married, we already had a child. And our firstborn was 10 at the time. And we, I needed to do justice to being his non-black stepmother. That is a whole other thing because in every culture, the stepmother is, you know, made out to be this person that is unkind and whatever. And I really was determined that I was going to be a loving, kind and accepting parent to a black boy in America. And I really wanted to know what that involved. I really did, and I took that responsibility so seriously that I studied courses in culturally sustaining pedagogy. I began a study of critical race theory back then, right? So I was in my mid-20s by then. And I began not only to formally study those things, but I began to then practice, right? It's all about practice. And it became a way of life. It was foundational. So before our children even came along, there was a great deal of mutual study that Bob and I engaged in. There was a great deal of practice around parenting our first child in a way that was anti-racist before that word even existed. We didn't know that that word existed, right? That's a relatively new word. Uh, blending is a very new concept. Even when my children were, you know, like in middle school, we didn't have that terminology to refer to, a, to, to their identity or ablation. Um, those are relatively new terms. And uh, I'm so glad we're creating those terms and awareness. Um, most of all, I think one of those fundamental things that I learned um, early was that what we needed to do was to be really intentional, to be really intentional in becoming ongoing 
learners that one of the ways that I, as a non-Black parent to Black youth, could operate in the world is to really deeply, in integrity, commit to my own anti-racism work. Um, and that is a journey that never ends.